We all have heard horror stories of how a remodel nearly tore a couple apart, as well as how impactful our environment can be on our state of well-being. Remodels don't have to end in divorce, and we can reflect our true selves in our environment with the right approach. Welcome to Psychotecture. My name is Rachel Melvald, and I'm a psychotherapist and designer. Psychotecture was developed as a methodological approach to ease issues that come up in design challenges, as well as the philosophy on how our environment can reflect our highest selves. Each week, I will interview an expert in the field of design and psychology to shed light on design challenges. I will also have a special series called The Psychotech is In, where I can offer help to those in design intervention need. Welcome to The Psychotech is In. On this segment of The Psychotech is In, you're going to meet my design team. I'm going to introduce you to my go-to experts, such as my architect, contractor, psychiatrist, and various other design experts in the field, to look at all aspects of mental health and design challenges, and to bring on our experts to support the process. Hi, welcome to the next episode of The Psychotech is In, where we are moving into our segment of Meeting My Design Team and a very important referral and the go-to psychiatrist I call her, Dr. Josephine McNary, is our special guest today. Dr. McNary is a board-certified general psychiatrist working with a variety of patients in her outpatient practice, adults, families, and couples, and she specializes in medication management of mood and anxiety disorders, more specifically in treatment-resistant mood disorders. She has an extensive training and fellowship at UCLA Department of Psychiatry and Oncology, as well as completing a fellowship at the UCLA Mood Disorders Clinic, and has a successful, thriving practice throughout Los Angeles County called Cal Psychiatry. And we really need her as clients and couples navigate the sometimes overwhelming waters of what medication, psychotropic medication is, how do we access it, and how does that affect relationships? And without any further ado, let's get to the expert, Dr. Josephine McNary. It really is an honor to have this chance to interview Josephine because as we know with the psychotect is in and how psychotecture works, we are an all one-stop shop and we are meeting your treatment needs with a group of highly skilled individuals that can help with anything from your mental health care to your interior design remodel and any home issues that come up. So as a very important part of a design team or who I refer to, I want to just start off the interview with educating our viewers on the state of psychiatry now. And if I were to refer to you, what would your general admission intake process be? Well, thank you for having me, first off. It's always exciting and fun to talk to you and to learn more about psychotecture. The general intake process that's a good question. Let me think about it. <laughs> I think it depends why someone come, why they come in. And when someone comes into my office, I actually already know a little bit about them because I have an introductory intake call to actually understand 
if I would be a good fit for them. And also if I'd be able to provide them with what they're looking for. I think sometimes people go to a psychiatrist thinking that they're going to get therapy and some psychiatrists do that, but I just do medication. And a lot of times people also come to me because they just don't know where to start. And so sometimes they start with me to get a little bit of a diagnostic evaluation. I mean, they don't need to prepare anything, but they just let me know about their history and let me know about their symptoms that they're experiencing. We go into some family history, go into past relationships and, you know, all of those things. Um, And then we talk about the different types of therapy that could be available with medication being just one part of that. And if they decide that medication is something that they would like to pursue, and if I agree that it's something that would be of benefit and help them with the problems that they're presenting with, then we move forward with that. But other times people are just wondering about medications or wondering about other types of treatments. And so I have, um, you know, quite a, a good understanding of the different modalities of therapies that are out there. We talk about what might be most appropriate for their needs and for what they are looking for. Thank you for that explanation. I think that really breaks it down very easily to understand how to go into a psychiatry appointment. And one of the main reasons that I refer to you and have will continue to refer to you as a psychotecture referral is because you do like like a biopsychosocial assessment is what I would do as a psychotherapist. And as you know, in psychotecture, I've implemented this four-step system with the assessment diagnosis, intervention, and maintenance. But your ability from what I've learned about you to discern all these different treatment modalities and your ability to really learn, explore, and you have your own podcast that you really look at the whole treatment trajectory and what complementary therapies would be advantageous if medication were not to be prescribed. So I think right off the bat, with your practice, I appreciate your assessment, how you assess and how you treat. I want to get more specific as a case that in the psychotech is in scenario, if we have, because I know you work with couples and families, adults primarily, right? When there is a situation, and I guess more specifically, when we're looking at moving into a new home or remodel or any high stress period in an individual's life or a couple's life, I've seen medication help for my clients, for colleagues that really just help them get through a stressful period. But some clients will say, no, I should weather it through. I should push through. And and sometimes you just see it just take that edge off so people can persevere through that. So can you kind of explain that? Yeah. Yeah. So one way I will answer that question is a lot of clients or patients come to me because they've been in therapy for quite a while, or maybe they just started with their therapist and the therapist has kind of sensed that the individual is really hitting a wall and they can't move forward in therapy maybe because they are feeling so depressed and they have a hard time just kind of experiencing or thinking about emotions because they're so far down there, maybe in terms of low mood, or they're so anxious 
that they actually can't get into the real work that needs to be done in therapy to then move forward. And so sometimes what happens is that the therapist says, you know, and most therapists have a very good idea of when medication might be advantageous or not. And so that's one way that someone might come into me in terms of thinking, okay, they're hitting that wall and we really need the medication to kind of help them break through to really do the work that needs to be done in therapy. And so that's one scenario. The other thing that I was thinking when you were talking, I think it has to do with history, the individual's history. So I see so many people, I would say probably about 75% of the people I see have been on medication in the past. And they've relied on medication in the past during times of high stress, during times of transition throughout their lifetime. I mean, most, usually not during adolescence, but usually kind of young 20s, they start noticing emergence of low mood or really significant anxiety symptoms or panic attacks, often during college. And they are put on medication and they find that it works. But then over a period of time, they feel that they don't really need the medication and they likely don't. But then life goes on. And during another period of high stress, another period of transition, they notice those familiar symptoms come up again. And so oftentimes what I see is people who say, okay, this is happening again. And they really have a sense how medication can be helpful. And then we get them back on. And usually it, you know, it's a predictable response. Yeah. I think that's a great example because in times of transition, especially college being, I remember in my own college experience, I think it was one of the most underrated going into college my freshman year and leaving. It just kind of brings you to that trauma zone of being panicked and not really being able to function sometimes. So allowing the medication to support a client to be able to grasp that sense of, I can, you know, get to class, I can make it through, you know, just functioning so that they can develop the support system and the coping skills is really important. But I will also say there's another side of that. So there's people just are all over the spectrum, right? And so some people are in therapy, they're hitting that wall. We have to educate them about how medication can and can't be helpful, right? And so what expectations are and what the kind of reality of effect can be. But on the other side of the spectrum, I have people who have never done therapy and who say, you know, I just need a pill to make myself feel better. And I approach that a little bit differently because at that point, you know, I don't necessarily need to convince them to take medication, but I might need to convince them to think about other ways to treat them. That's what I appreciate about how you discern the patient, one that just wants a magic pill to take everything away. I had a situation with a mid-20s patient client who was moving to New York City in her first new apartment during COVID. She was really excited. She you know, knew New York was the place for her. And all of a sudden it started setting in that she really hadn't grieved Los Angeles and her panic was impairing her. In the psychotexture sense, she started talking about her room feeling very small, not liking where her position was in the room, her, her wall coverings, the window treatments, the lighting. So we looked and conceptualized that as, well, we're going to continue with your therapy. And to see this, what I see in trauma is her panic really comes from that 
earlier childhood place of feeling very small. Yet she had a job interview the next day for her promotion. She really wasn't sleeping. She wasn't eating. So she continued her Lexapro and was able to function again so that we could go into the trauma vortex to explore those deeper themes of feeling what panic is, is such a earlier primitive response, right? So it it almost like in my understanding what medication helps with it, just kind of, it tempers going down the rabbit hole so much. Right. But in that scenario, I would say if that person, if that individual didn't address the root of the problem through therapy, I mean, medication would probably help her from going down the rabbit hole, but would she really get anything? Would she move forward, right, in her life? And, you know, I think it's important to talk to people about medication. It's not going to give you insight into why you you behave or why your mind goes certain places. And so if I think about more of a lasting effect, I think about the therapy is what's really going to kind of move you forward and, and teach you in terms of future experiences that you might have down the road. So yeah, it's this marriage between therapy and medication that I get that therapy, if, if you're so stuck, you won't actually be able to do the work to gain the insight to move forward. But if you only rely on the medication and don't even address the past and the trauma and how your mind moves and thinks about different things, that's also not going to be helpful in the long run either. Right. So you're really orchestrating this treatment balance. And so we would look at medication or psychotropic medication as a, would we call it an aid? A, what would we call it? I guess I try- like to use the word tool. Therapists all the time use, here are some tools that I can give you. And so I guess I just like that because it's just one of the tools that we can use. For some people, it's a very important tool. It's a necessary tool. For other people, it's a tool that they kind of come and go and they use it sometimes if they think that the time is right. And other times, you know, it may not be so necessary. Right. And how about with that scenario, using it in times of adjustment? Do you prescribe it for just a few months and then wean somebody off of it when they adjust? Let's say in the scenario, I had a couple, they were getting out of a housing situation and in a divorce, she just needed her Wellbutrin, she said, just really got her through just the dark hole of divorce. And then she weaned off of it and was able to reacclimate to her world. So would that be how it would maybe be prescribed? Yeah. And I think it so depends on the individual situation, right? right? But yes, oftentimes people say, well, you know, do I really need to rely on medication for this? It's just, is this just part of it? It's the scenario, right? And the way I answer that is if you kind of understand that and say, you know, this is my grieving process and part of the grieving process is to be depressed and sad and not want to kind of interact with people, I might say, you know, that seems normal. It seems like a normal grieving process, but to what degree is that impairing your daily functioning? And if it really is impairing your ability to work, to take care of yourself, to take care of other people that you need to take care of, then maybe it is something you need to get treatment for just for a short period of time. But other people might say, you know, this is part of the process. Divorce is a part of the sadness over and difficulty over divorce is grieving a loss of a relationship. 
And if it's not necessarily impairing your ability to do what you have to do on a daily basis, maybe medication isn't something that that you're going to be interested in. So it does depend. And it also depends on where someone lies within kind of that comfort zone of taking a medication. But I will say it is, yes, in terms of thinking about medications, you know, kind of just a basic summary of length of treatment, I usually say, you know, it should be six to 12 months, but I often tell people three to six months, at least considering taking medication. Once you get on it and start feeling better, you don't want to pull it away right away. It's not an antibiotic. It doesn't (laughs) treat the infection. And then you take it away and set seven to 10 days, and then you're all better. You know, if you take it away too soon, those symptoms are going to bubble back up. So that's why we want people to stay on medication for a chunk of time to kind of show that there's a stability there. And then maybe you can pull it back. And the hope is that your life situation has changed. If you've learned kind of other ways of coping and you don't necessarily need to lean on the medication. Thank you for explaining that. I think our viewers and my clients and a lot of colleagues don't really understand that trajectory. They really don't get, well, how long does it take to get in your system? How long would we want to be on it? Is it like an antibiotic where we can just get through for the month or two or this difficult period, but to have some period of time to let it metabolize and to work in the system to see the effects of it would be beneficial. And then to reassess in these months how, like, what I think is important to differentiate is the impairment. And that we know as a psychiatrist, as a psychotherapist, is the level of impairment socially, emotionally, occupationally, so much that they can't function is the barometer. So that's really helpful to give us some of that expectation of understanding the timeline and distinguishing when a medication would be indicated. I wonder also about the different class of psychotropic medications. I think we're kind of talking more about the antidepressants, such as a Prozac, a Lexapro, but there's another class that we're a little more weary of are the barbiturates and that class, like the Valium and Clonopin, which is the kind of easy fix-all during a stressful period. Yeah. So there are different types of medications. And yes, what I've been kind of thinking of when I describe treatment is really, I'm thinking about the medications that are kind of labeled as the antidepressants, but also are anti-anxiety medications. And those medications are things like Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro, Paxil, and in another class, but a similar effect in terms of antidepressant, something called Wellbutrin, which a lot of people hear about. There are a few other ones that we use, but I think of these medications, if you think about treatment, if we're talking about depression, and I, I mean, maybe talk about anxiety with the exception of Wellbutrin is not necessarily anxiety treatment. But if you think about the Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro class of medications, those are like, I, I think of it as if it's smothering a fire, right? A fire of anxiety. And what it is, is you just put this fire blanket on top of it and just smother those flames. Maybe there's a little bit of kindling, a little bit of warmth still. And so you still have a little bit of that anxiety, but it's dramatically decreased. And it's decreased consistently throughout, I mean, throughout the day, unless you have major stressors that come up and maybe your anxiety is going to peak, or sometimes you have those panic attacks that kind of poke through. But in general, it's kind of that overall uniform treatment of anxiety throughout the day. 
And it takes a few weeks for it to take effect. So it's not going to work the day after you start it, but it takes about two or three weeks, depending on, you know, how quickly your doctor is able to titrate the medication to the dose that works the best for you. And so those are the medications that, you know, I'm talking about. The reason why I talk about those is that they really are the standard of care for treatment of anxiety or depression because they work really well uh, in most people. And also they're not addictive. So it's not that you develop a dependency to it. Some people are worried about developing a dependency to those medications. And I think really what they're talking about is they say, well, you know, I've tried to go off of them before and I go off and then I'm depressed and I'm anxious. And my answer is, you know, it's a longer explanation, but they think if you are on the medication, then your baseline is always going to be depressed or anxious because you're so used to having to take that medication. Right. But the reality is depression and anxiety is often cyclical. And so the period of time that you remain on the medication is about six months. And the theory behind that is that, you know, a depressive episode by itself untreated is going to last about six to 12 months. So that's why you stay on the medication for a period of time, you pull them off of it. And the hope is that, you know, those neurotransmitters that were maybe low or deficient during that period of depression or anxiety They've actually naturally, you know, pumped up to kind of a more steady state just because of the natural progression of a depressive or anxiety episode. It's kind of, I'm I'm kind of simplifying it. No, but that's actually really eye-opening. I never quite could explain that as to when clients are worried about being addicted or feeling the withdrawal, that that's the natural, you're really looking at the natural trajectory of depression and anxiety and how it dips and goes into a spike. So that's a really helpful explanation around how it takes some time when when you're going through episodes and also when you're going on and off a medication, because these antidepressants are made to support our neurosynaptic system to wire cleanly, not like a drug, like let's say cocaine that would just put something in and then it would be depleted and not know how to function. It's supporting like a muscle, giving it the juice to really support that neurochemical system. Right. And this idea of what something like Lexapro, which is a commonly used medication, it's part of this class called the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And really what it does is the theory is that if you are, this is very simplified, but if you're depressed or anxious, you have, for some reason, a dip in serotonin levels. And it's a low level of serotonin that, you know, leads to depressive or anxiety symptoms. And what the medication does is hooks onto a receptor in your brain and actually tricks your brain into creating more of its own natural serotonin. And so it's not like a supplement, really. It really is kind of helping your brain kind of function the way it does in normal times. And so, you know, that's kind of one way to think about it. Going into the other medications, so the benzodiazepines are the medications that we use as needed for anxiety. So if you're having a panic attack and feel very anxious, you take something like a Xanax or a Clonopin or an Ativan or a Valium, and it right, not right away, but within kind of a shorter period of time, five to 15 minutes, just kind of calms you down. And it has a more of a sedative effect that so makes you kind of tired and sleepy. And yes, they are very effective, but it's not a complete treatment. I think of it more of like a Band-Aid. So you put a Band-Aid on and then, you know, after a few hours, it actually kind of gets, loses its stick and then comes off in a way. Kind of in a, in a vengeance sometimes because it is a, an addictive supplement right. to the yeah. brain. So there could be 
a worse withdrawal. So one would have to use that more conscientiously around like I'm talking about certain stressful periods of moving, transition, life transitions, divorces, deaths. These agents can be used like, you know, when you're on a plane and you have extreme phobia flying, pop a Xanax, maybe for that. But you wouldn't take it when you're grieving a lost one, you know, or something in that regard every day. So it's responsible use. And so it's, I think of them as a useful tool, assuming there's not a history of addiction, as long as you're not using them in conjunction with alcohol. And it really is something that you use sparingly as a rescue. And if it, if it works, then, you know, I think that is reasonable if, if it's used in the right person and in a responsible way. But oftentimes I say, you know, if you're relying on it on it every single day, maybe you should think about these other medications that have a little bit more of a lasting uniform effect. Then you don't have to be worrying about addiction. That's right. Yeah. In a remodel or a high stress reconstruction, I, I think clonopin and Xanax would be very tempting, but you're looking at the whole biopsychosocial history and substance abuse is going to be a part of the treatment plan during these difficult transitions and different kind of like now with COVID. So that's a good segue. How are you I imagine at this time, just we're in such an upheaval of transition to the home, working and taking care of children in the home and all the different systemic shifts that are happening. How are you, are you seeing medication and the need for medication rise at this time? Yeah. So I've been incredibly busy over these last, you know, how many months has it been? Nine months. And yeah. The election, which I think after this airs, the election will hopefully be be over. But um, yeah, we're doing a high uh, the day before at the highest point of anxiety. Very apropos to be interviewing you. Right. There's a lot of anxiety, but I think what I've noticed is I've had a lot of people come back to me, and so I've been in practice for ten years at this point. So I've had people come and go, and so over the years I've put people on medication. They do better. They go off. You know, I say, this is great. You know, we're going to say goodbye, but you're always welcome to come back if you need anything. And most of those people have come back. And I think what it is, is that during times that are stressful or during times of transition, which this qualifies as one of them. Adjustment disorder. Yeah. This would give anyone an adjustment disorder. Yeah. So, you know, during times of these sorts of stressful times, if you are already vulnerable to developing depression or anxiety, This is probably one of those times that you're going to start noticing those symptoms, right? Being at home all the time, if you already are having conflict with other people in your life, you know, avoidance of that conflict actually worked quite well for people. But now that they're at home with these people that they sometimes have conflict with, and there's not a lot of room for escape or breathing or avoiding all of those interactions, it comes to a head. So yes, it is a time where a lot of people who have relied on medication before and didn't necessarily need it for a period of time, they kind of are, not everybody, but are circling back and say, you know, this is a tool that was helpful for me. So I'm going to lean on it this time around too. Yeah. I have a couple that uh, she'll say, if you're off your Prozac or getting a divorce, you are staying on your Prozac right now because she notices such like his rage and all this, you know, coming in this activation and the activating time we're in, one would say that when, let's say in a couple, if if somebody's 
taking medication, it, it really can save their social relationships. Not like it's meant to, like it's a, a tool when it becomes bad enough, but the ramifications sometimes of not being on a medication to support very deep impairing symptoms can have more adverse effects, splitting up a relationship, a family. So we look at it as an aid sometimes in that regard. With that said though, so the main concern, the main reason why people actually go off of some of these medications, the ones like Lexapro or Prozac or Zoloft, is because of sexual side effects. And so maybe someone's struggling in their relationship because, you know, somebody is, has more irritability or reactivity or anxiety, and it's just really throwing the relationship off balance. They start these medications, they tend to feel better, a little bit less reactive, a little bit calmer, but then they start noticing those sexual side effects emerging. And it's in about 30 to 40% of people who take That's right. Thank you for bringing that up. That is a serious consideration. So it's so tricky, right? Because, you know, on one hand, it's helpful. And on the other hand, in terms of sexual functioning, it may not be entirely helpful and could be harmful. And so that's what I spend a lot of time talking about with people in terms of, okay, what are the benefits of these medications and what might the risk be? So it's not a perfect solution either sometimes, but then again, not everybody has these side effects. Well, no, that it, it does come up. And I, I think that is really important how to leverage the risk variables of really impairing them that the sexual, is it the sexual desire or the functioning that you find? So it is not only lower libido, but it's also delayed orgasm. So you know, I think with certain people, when they come to me wanting medication, I tell them about the side effect and they say, well, you know, we don't really have much of a sex life because I'm so angry or I'm so irritable or I feel so depressed and it's just not something I'm interested in. And so what I tell the people, I tell people, you know, well, I understand that, but once you start feeling better and hopefully you will on these medications, you're going to start noticing, you're going to start expecting a little bit more of an interest in sex and sexuality and kind of being with your partner. And I think that's where it comes up. People start noticing feeling better in other aspects of their lives, but then they realize that the sexual functioning is not necessarily following the same trajectory. And so that's when the discussion comes in. Okay. How do we fine tune this a little bit? And there are things that we can do. So I tell people that the sexual functioning piece of things may not be a deal breaker. It just might be something that we're going to monitor over time and then think about other strategies that we can use. There are some medications you can add, you know, they've drug companies have tried to create other medications, newer medications that don't have that side effect. And so there are newer medications that have been out something like Vibrid. It's kind of one that comes to mind and they say, they believe and have shown some data that shows that it may not have as many sexual side effects. But in my experience, and this is my clinical experience, I don't think it works quite as well for anxiety as the the traditional SSRIs. And so I really do have the sense that maybe the older medications work better and there might be a link between the sexual functioning and the reason why they might be helpful for anxiety. There might be a little bit of a link there. And so it's still unclear exactly why. And would you prescribe a Viagra, anything like that in these situations? Yeah. And is there one for women yet? Is there, is... (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, women can use Cialis, a similar medication. Okay. Yes. We can definitely use that. I tend to think about other options that aren't kind of something like Viagra that in the moment you have to take it, you have to plan ahead. There are other options. Well, butrin is actually often added and in doses, if you get to 300 milligrams, it could be helpful for reversing sexual side effects. And I mean, with that said, it's not as if your sexual drive is gone, right? It's just feels a little lower. And I will say that some people that I have on these high doses of SSRIs don't experience sexual side effects. And then other people, it's unclear to what degree it is from the medication versus stressors in their lives or just what their baseline sexual functioning is is too. I mean, there, there are a lot of factors behind sexual functioning, sexual desire. So you know, I, I often say, well, the medication isn't making it any better, but, you know, we have to take a lot of other factors. Well, how much is, is sex important in the couple's life? And that's, that's another expectation that can be different with each couple and individually. I think we could spend a whole podcast or whole, you know, interview on that alone. And I hope to continue to, because referring to you like the through line that's coming up, it is such an individualized approach. And there's so many variables you take into account when you're prescribing for adults in various situations, be it a traumatic adjustment, COVID or lifelong depression. I really admire and value your study perspective in medicine and your your appreciation of all complementary therapies and looking at the individual and the system in the bigger picture. And I know you to embrace the arts and understand media and characters and movies and TV that you're really looking at the whole big picture. And as we met in, in the arts, obviously I work more in the design front. I think we really have this wonderful connection and seeing the individual and the environment and and how we life is art and how we're living our lives so it is just a wonderful honor to be able to pick your brain and give us a, a quick understanding of how psychotropic medication is prescribed and and how it affects us this was so helpful and i look forward to other times and and before we end how can we tell our viewers to get a hold of you? I'll be providing your information at the end of this video, but what's an easy way for a client or any of our viewers to contact you? I think the easiest way is just to go to our website that has a lot of information about my background as well as the other backgrounds of the other psychiatrists in our group. It's www.calpsychiatry.com and you'll see We'll have a lot of resources on there and a lot of information. So in your various offices, I got to see you downtown last week and now in the marina today. So your your office environment is still reflecting, even though you're not able really or seeing people live and you are doing virtual right now, which is great. So well, just thank you so much. And and in this really activating time, I hope to see you on the other end with some more calm collectively. And we're we're really happy to have you aboard. Thanks, Rachel, for having me on. And I'm so excited about the work you're doing and I can't wait to see where it goes. Thank you so much. I so appreciate your enthusiasm. I always have. It's been very supportive. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the day. We'll see you soon. 
This is Psychotecture by Rachel Malvald with coaching, consultation, and psychotherapy offered virtually and in home throughout the Los Angeles greater area and nationally. We work to ease design challenges to create transformative habitats. Thank you, and we look forward to the next episode and your questions, so don't forget to subscribe.